Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I'm a company valuation expert in St. Louis, Missouri. During this episode, we will discuss what happens in an IRS tax audit, tips on how to avoid an IRS audit, and what to do if you are audited, specifically pertaining to estate and gift tax valuations. We have the privilege to discuss these issues with a former IRS auditor, Mike Gregory. He's a mediator in Minneapolis, Minnesota, author of 11 plus books regarding various valuation topics and creator of the collaboration effect. He's a frequent speaker at estate planning council events and uses mediation techniques to de-escalate situations. Welcome, Mike. How are you? I'm great. It's my pleasure to be with you here today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. You have so much knowledge in this space. Um, I think you wanted to give us a fun story to begin with, right? Well, I'm going to ask a question. Okay. Would you like to reduce the amount of conflict that you have? And would that be with the IRS and with others? And if the answer to that is yes, then this is the place to be, because I'm going to address this relative to a state and gift. But having worked for the IRS for 28 years, from frontline to executive level, and headed up business valuation for the IRS my last 11 years. And at one point in my career, I had some 1,200 employees and I was in charge of 14 to 17 states. I have a wide breadth of experience at the IRS. Having left the IRS, as you heard, I've written 11 books, but on point here today are three of my books. One is called Business Valuations in the IRS. It's the most complete and up-to-date text on this topic of business valuations in the IRS. And it has chapters on classification, on how IRS employees are evaluated, how that can help you to give them a positive or to document things if they aren't going all that well, and what you can do with those. Also, two of my other books, The Servant Manager, 203 Tips from the Best Places to Work in America, and Peaceful Resolutions, which is all about conflict resolution. So these things all come together as we think about estate and gift tax returns. I have many stories, but what I'm going to try and do is really focus today and address the issues that you have on how can you avoid and what to do if audited related to an estate and gift tax return. So that's my major focus here today. Well, and you were also, there's um, something that a lot of valuators look at, which is a guide basically for the IRS on discount for lack of marketability. And you were also a part of developing that guide, correct? Yes, there are there were a number of guides and three of those have been made uh, public. Two, because I filed Freedom of Information Act requests to make them public. But the, the three that the public are aware of are discounts for lack of marketability in the IRS. That's for IRS valuation professionals, but the information in it can really help your valuer. Another one is valuing non-controlling interests in S-corps. And a third one is on reasonable compensation. And that one has really come to a forefront today uh, since the Tax Cut and Jobs Act came out and reasonable compensation is a bigger issue. But all three of those are elements that I will use with my clients if they're involved with any of those issues because the IRS is underfunded. They haven't kept up with training and the IRS is, has a goal of closing so many cases. So I'll use elements in those when the IRS sometimes makes shortcuts because they're under pressure to close out so many cases in a given uh, entity code, given uh, activity code. So for example, in 1120s, thinking of corporations, and again, this is, I could go, I guess there's a state and gift, I'll stick with a state and gift. There are five different categories of estates and seven different categories of gifts. 
And the IRS has uh, put together filters to identify which of those they want to audit. And I worked in research for four years and I helped put together those filters when I worked in research. The idea was to try and improve voluntary compliance two years out. But the outliers on those filters were good for exam to find cases. In research, you don't have any taxpayer identification numbers. So I don't know who the actual taxpayer is. But if we can develop a filter that finds outliers that look like these are good candidates for audit working for the IRS, I could develop a regression analysis based on several variables, maybe just a half dozen, that might come in with a 99, 97% uh, uh, coefficient of regression. And we could give that equation over to the exam classifiers and they could go find those returns. So they never had taxpayer identification numbers. And we, I mean, we never did, but we could give it to them and they then have taxpayer identification numbers and they could go find those folks. So uh, that's a little bit about element of classification, but I'll get to greater detail with that with the Satan gift later. And with respect to those job aids, yes, I was the champion of all three of those. I had a, a mantra as a manager, and my mantra as a manager was, catch your employees doing something right, something specific, at least once a week and thank them. Number two, get them the resources they need from their perspective and don't micromanage. And number three was give them a chance to shine in leadership or achievement so they can shine within the organization. It could be something outside of work or in work generally in work, but give them a chance to shine and feel that they are being respected and they're, rec they're recognized for things they've done. Well, with that, I was a territory manager and I had other territory managers that were also being evaluated by business results and customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction. And consistently, our territory was always a leader in all three of those. So business results, you can think what those are. Customer satisfaction was something done by the Pacific Consulting Group. And employee satisfaction was an annual Gallup poll done across the IRS with 110,000 employees. And I'd always come up near the top and they'd ask me, how do you do that? How do you do that? And I would always come back with those three elements I just shared with you. And I still believe that today. And I consult today with businesses on how they can grow faster and better and reduce the friction that they might have within their own organization and promote collaboration. And uh, it works. So that's what I did. And that's what I do yet today. Well, and, and that gives us a little bit of background as what you've been doing. Um, the reality is that you really have become a well-known mediation expert and through this um, have been involved in some of the civil unrest in Minneapolis mm -hmm. recently, correct? Uh, I've been involved, let me, let me qualify that. That's, sure. a, that's a work in process. Gotcha. So the stuff in Minneapolis is a work in process. And the answer is, yes, I have volunteered through what's called Conflict Resolution Minnesota. And I volunteered through what's called the Dispute Resolution Center as a volunteer for mediation. And how that's unfolding right now is a work in process. Gotcha. But I've been involved with other police shootings. There was a Jamar Clark shooting in Minneapolis. And the day after that shooting, I actually went to the mayor's office in Minneapolis, the police chief's office. And I went to the Hennepin County attorney. That's the county in which Minneapolis is located. And I gave them copies of my book, Peaceful Resolutions. And I said, just read chapter two on de-escalation because we were ready to blow after that shooting in North Minneapolis. The second time is in Falcon Heights. And that's within a mile and a half of where I live right now. I, I walk past there on a daily basis with my wife. We have daily morning walks. But there's a there's a memorial there for Philando Castile. 
And this also, both these made the national news. And the one with Philando Castile, I was a mediator with the community of Falcon Heights, volunteer mediator, and with the Bureau of Mediation Services with the state of Minnesota. And they had six public workshops. And that community really went through a healing process. They fired their police force. They brought on board a whole new police force. They went through major changes in that community and they found out things that their police force did, they weren't aware the police force did. And as a result, they've really made positive changes. And I was involved with that process too. That's also awesome. And I think that kind of gets us to something that you've developed. Before we start talking about all of the, the IRS audit information, I think part of what you have done is say, you know, how do you start to work together to come to a resolution? And you've actually created something called the collaboration effect. So yeah. how does this, what is this process and how does it relate to an IRS tax audit or how to avoid an audit? And then what to do if you are audited by the IRS? Because it does have a lot to do with that. It's just that we kind of have to set the stage to understand this process. Well, the collaboration effect is actually based on neuroscience. I've been working with neuroscientists now for seven years. I've been involved with hundreds of cases with the IRS and I've saved my clients hundreds of millions of dollars by the application of the collaboration effect. Over my career with the IRS and outside of the IRS, I've been involved with some 2,500 mediations and negotiations, even with Fortune 100 companies with issues up to a billion dollars, putting things in perspective. And I volunteer locally with this same technique uh, with mediation. And I do that with a local group and the county I'm in is Ramsey County and that's St. Paul with the Dispute Resolution Center on housing court, conciliation court, neighborhood disputes, in public housing disputes, and also I've mediated between gangs. That's all volunteer work, but the same techniques are used. So a few years ago, I came up with, you know, there's this technique and the technique is really simple. There's three, there are three things. It's about connecting relationships. Now in Minnesota, they have something called Minnesota nice. And the nice thing is it works in all kinds of positive ways. But in Minnesota, folks are friendly, but it's hard to become a friend. That's the negative side. But there are all kinds of positives. And on the white side, there are all kinds of positives. We're number one in SAT. ACT, kids going to college, graduating from high school, we're either number one or number two in all of those. But when you look at white versus black in Minnesota, we're terrible. So if we look, for example, at housing, we're number 49 out of 50 states in disparity. 74% of whites own a home. 26% of blacks own a home in Minnesota. We have lots of room for improvement. But on the collaboration effect and reaching out to others on a positive side, that's about connecting relationships, it's about listening actively, asking open-ended questions, paraphrasing, uh, listening with empathy. And then it's about educating judiciously rather than selling. And I've been brought in with marketers to work with this too, because it relates back into selling. But those three elements allow you to build bridges to move towards closure. I make presentations to C-suite organizations. Everybody's got a C in their title, CFO, CEO, COO, whatever. And when I speak to those folks, they really get this. And they, they, they come back with, we need to really engage with the other party to understand what their needs are, understand elements of them personally, understand what's important to them and help them with what their problems are. That's connecting relationships. 
You want to do that with the IRS agent you're working with. Okay. You want to do that and then also listen to them. It turns out if we've been listened to from neuroscience, if we've been listened to, we're far more receptive to listen to the other party. So let ask them questions. How'd you come up with what you came up with and work through that? And if you do that, then when you want to present what you want to present, you're fired up and ready to go. And you know all kinds of detail, but you don't want to do that. You want to present the information judiciously. You're an expert witness, Melissa. You know that you don't come in to sell the judge. You come in to help the judge make a decision. You're there to help educate the judge. So the third part is educating judiciously. Now, after you've done those three things, then you can come forward with, let's see if we can move towards closure and let's talk about negotiation on what are the things we agree on. Do we have things that we disagree on? Why do we disagree? And let's work towards the interest to try and resolve that. So I've taken the techniques of what I've learned from mediation and negotiation and put it together for this collaboration effect. And in fact, I'm working on my 12th book right now. And that book is going through editing. In fact, I'll be talking with the publisher later this afternoon. I don't have a title because they're test marketing the book for a title. They think this is going to be a significant text. We'll see. None of my other books are bestsellers. They're very much geared towards specific audiences. So I've never written a book quite like this before. But sure. Overcoming, confident, overcoming conflict with collaboration. And we'll see where it goes. Well, and I think it's an interesting perspective of what you've given, because when we are doing expert testimony work, we are defending a position um, and we're defending our work. And then if we move over, because I've been involved in collaborative divorce. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you move over there, you're really not really defending either side. You are working towards, OK, instead of your position, what are some of your goals? And if you can start to identify your goals as opposed to, you know, I want to live in this particular house. Well, what does that mean? Let's step back. Let's say, do you want a comfortable house? Do you want a house that has enough room? Then I think there's more solutions than it's either I have this house or nothing, right? I mean, that's part of the whole mediation process. Well, mediation, uh, there are three types. Evaluative, and that's usually an attorney or judge that says, if you went to court, this is what would happen. There is facilitative, and that's generally what I do. And that's facilitating this difference between the parties to find something they both can live with. And then there's transformative. And that's oftentimes used in divorce. And that's transforming relationships with the parties so they can work together going forward. Well, I'll use sometimes transformative techniques, even in facilitative mediations. But in a mediation, you really want a mediator that one, has skills in the area that you're working in. So I'm a business value and background like you. I have some initials behind my name with ASA and CBA. I'm an MBA and finance guy. But the important element is in business valuation, I oftentimes am brought in in difficult situations. And the dollars there can be not all that significant to very significant. But with each of the appraisers, I get their appraisals. And I develop trust with each of the ultimate clients and the decision makers. And then when I come in and the experts are there, I'll just ask questions. And as I ask questions, let's say it was your valuation, you had a host of assumptions in your valuation. And what happens is usually the attorney for both sides will come in and say, we're right. It's a zero one. We're 100% right and they're 100% wrong. And they've got the, the, the client fired up for that too. But as I begin to ask questions with the valuers there, some assumptions come up. And as those assumptions come up, the decision maker begins to realize it's not a one zero. There actually are some issues here that maybe we might not get 100%. Maybe we might get something less than that. 
And I have no dog in this hunt. So it could end up 90, 10, 10, 90, 50, 50, whatever. Whatever it is, the parties are going to have to agree to it. But as I ask questions, I usually start out, let's just say it's about the house or it's about money. And it's very narrow. But as time goes on and I ask questions, they start to realize things like, well, it's about the kids. It's about supporting our kids. It's about long term. What are we going to do? Because this is going to end. And that'll be the end of, let's say, I don't do mediations in uh, family court. But for the, the issue you brought up, yes, we're going to have an ending, but it's also going to be a new beginning. And what might that look like? And how do we want that to go forward? And as we begin to think of this from a host of other interests, that allows the parties to think of it more broadly. So instead of the narrow focus, a much broader focus can develop. And they, begin to, they begin to realize they have other interests than just the single or singular type interest that they had uh, initially. Yeah, and that kind of, there is one book that is titled Business Valuations and the IRS, mm -hmm. um, five books in one. What, what does that start to cover having to do, because some of these valuations will go into US tax court and they'll kind of be fought um, because the IRS disagreed with something in the valuation. But what does this particular book kind of cover? Well, there are five parts to the book, and it, it's huge. It's 852 pages. It has okay. 30 examples. It has uh, 180 practical pointers. But the first part of the book talks about the IRS, how it's organized, how it does uh, classification, a whole uh, bunch of insight into how the IRS works. Then there's another section that talks into how to work with the IRS. So that's a whole different avenue. What would you do for a state and gift that we'll talk about here? What would you do in corporate? What might you do in partnerships? In each of these, you have to realize the IRS is 14 different divisions and they reorganized in the year 2000 and they've been in stovepipes ever since and they don't talk to each other. So when I get a call, someone asks me to help I first have to identify what type of return are we working with. That will tell me the division that we're in. So let's just say a state and gift that's in the small business self-employed division. That's a program within that division. And then I want to know who is the IRS estate and gift tax attorney. That's the agent. And where are they located? And who's the manager? And where are they located? And then I want to know, do you have a business valuer? If it's a business valuation involved. And who are they and where are they located? And who's the manager called the engineering manager of that person? And where are they located? Because we have different cultures within the IRS, within the division, and then also geography. So even though the IRS has a mission statement to provide top quality service by helping taxpayers understand and enforce the tax laws with integrity and fairness to all, that's a, that's a lofty mission. The reality is if the case is in LA or San Francisco or Kansas City or St. Louis or in Manhattan, each of those locations is going to handle that estate and gift tax case a little bit differently. In some places, you get a lot more agreed cases. Some cases, they'll use the valuers more. Sometimes they use the valuers less. Sometimes they use the, the valuer as uh, part of the negotiating tool, and they kick out the valuer, and the agent and agent's manager will work to try to resolve the issue. There are different ways in which the IRS might handle it. It's not consistent. So having insights into those, having run the engineering program nationally, I get it. There are 31 different managers in the engineering program. And I get it. They've reduced 350 to 200 employees. So they're supposed to close out more cases with less employees 
and they have eliminated the quality review process as a way to save time. That means there's a lot of quality issues that need to be addressed, but you don't attack. I look at it as I'm not out to attack. I'm out to do all the research I can on that agent and on that valuer, social media and otherwise, and find a way to connect with them. Mm -hmm. And then I want to ask them, what did they do and why? And given they cut training costs by 95% between 2011 and 2018, they started bringing them back in 2019. That means they're not up to date. You know, you don't do things the same way you did them three years ago, let alone nine years ago. So there's a lot of education that's needed. So ask them what they did and why, and then don't attack it. I've watched some of my peers on some of their blogs, and they talk about the mistakes the IRS valuer did, and like, what a dummy. And I'm like, I'm not looking at it like, what a dummy. I'm looking at it as, okay, I see why you did that in that way, but let me show you something else. And I'm going to give you actually, and they, they will give citations. They said, well, we gave them citations to articles. I'm like, give them the article. Mm -hmm. Give them your spreadsheet. Show them what you did and why. And as you do this, they're not, they're not dumb people. They just aren't educated. That's a difference. So they're not stupid. They're not dumb. They're just not necessarily always educated. So educate them. That's part of listen to them first, see what they did and why. And then you're going to educate judiciously to say, well, are you even aware of this? And let me show this to you. This is how we do things today. And that's a aha moment and can often work to help you resolve the issue with the IRS. Well, and I think that I was just talking to somebody the other day about this is that you know, early in your career as a valuation expert, you're like, there's a right and wrong way to do valuations. And you believe that. And then you start going and progressing through your career. And what I like to say is there's a right way and there's a righter way. And so it's really just, you know, most of the time when we as business valuation people, we create a valuation that we believe is right. Um, and we, we've, we've done the research to kind of back it up, but we may not always provide all of that in the report. And so what you're saying is you need to kind of open up your work papers. You need to prove it out to them, the IRS agent. Um, and one of the questions we have, the most common valuation discount or adjustment on an estate or gift tax valuation case is the discount for lack of marketability or DLOM. Do you have something, you know, and this was, this was what you created a guide on for IRS agents, but do you have something that you can kind of share in dealing with this discount? Well, I'm going to take a story based on a case and then based on several cases, make it a generic story. Okay. But with this story, I have a two hour presentation. And after this happened with this with a particular client. They brought me to Boston to present this to their law firm. They have 200 attorneys and I presented it to about half. And then some of those attorneys had graduated from Harvard Law School. So I've been invited and present a two hour presentation at the Harvard Club in downtown Boston. And I presented it twice. So they wow. brought me in once and they said, come on back again. But I'm gonna give you the sound bite of this, just the sound bite. I got a call from an appraiser who said, Mike, I, I did a valuation and I said the DLOM was 30 to 35%. This is an estate case. Uh, the the uh, IRS has said the DLOM is 10%. There's an attorney involved with the case. It's significant dollars. It was about $12 million in difference in tax. And uh, the attorney is involved. There are six of them. The lead attorney gets $1,000 an hour. And I've asked that lead attorney to call you. That lead attorney called me up and said, we have two issues. There's a legal issue 
and there's this DLAM issue. And we're going to write a 40-page paper on the brief, a brief on the legal issue. And on the DLAM issue, we're going to come in and tell them why they're wrong. We're going to have an unagreed case. We're going to go to appeals. We're going to get it settled at appeals. So how can you help me? Well, I started by saying, if you're going to do that, you don't need me. I would take a different approach. The person said, what would you do? And I said, the first thing I would do is find out all I can about that IRS agent. And I'm, I would actually contact the person and say, if we have to work together, can we build some trust with one another? Can you share some things with me? I'll share some things with you before we get into the issues. And then what I would do is I'd bring up the legal issue. And I'd talk with them about that legal issue and ask them where they're coming from and why. So they're being listened to. And then what I do is say, let me tell you where we're coming from and why after you've really listened to them without judgment and see where that goes and then go from there. So the person said, well, what kind of questions would you ask? Because I'll just say this, this attorney was really good and probably a very good litigator, but maybe didn't have the strong emotional intelligence skills on small talk. So I came through and I said, ask the person where they went for undergrad, where they would go to grad school. Um, how long have they been working with the IRS? Where are they from originally? Um, uh, and then get into things like, are you a morning or afternoon person? Uh, what do you like to do for fun? Just a number of questions like that. Do you drink coffee? You know, just simple questions and see where that goes. Well, the person did this, the attorney. And after they did that, they called me up and they said, wow, Mike, after I did that, uh, we talked about the legal issue and I don't have to write the brief. They agreed in full with what we came up with. Great. So now we're going to have a meeting on the DLOM. Okay, great. Well, what did you learn? And I'll just say, we learned, and I'm making this up, person went to Boston College for undergrad, Boston University for law schools, from Boston, lives in Boston today, is a runner, has two dogs, is a morning person, drinks Starbucks coffee. I'll just say a bunch of things like that. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, let's set up the meeting in an, in an environment where your law office is, and I'm just making this up, 38th floor, looking out at Boston Harbor, really nice. We'll bring in our attorneys. I said, actually, I want you to bring in yourself and one other attorney. And the attorney needs to be good looking because we look for food, water, sex, and shelter. So I want a good looking person who has not met this person that you're gonna break this up into three sections, connecting relationships. So when the person comes in, you're gonna have a round table. You're gonna sit down at this table. You're gonna have another counter over here and you're gonna offer, would you like some Starbucks coffee? And we have water and you're gonna bring in the right kind of foods, no breads, no starches. And this is from a book called The Brain Friendly Workplace by Erica Garns. She's a PhD neuroscientist. And if you go to her website, she actually has something you can download on the right kind of foods. But we had antioxidants like blueberries. We had cut up fruit. We had celery sticks, carrot sticks, peanut butter, and dark chocolate. Now we're gonna offer that to the IRS person. And by the way, we found out this person's a morning person. So we set up the meeting for 9 a.m. And we thought the meeting would take an hour. So we set it up for two hours. So there's no time constraint. And then they were offered these uh, foods, et cetera. And they said, no, maybe they took the water. Maybe they took the Starbucks coffee. You're going to take some food and you're going to set it down where you're sitting. That aroma might get out there with the peanut butter or the dark chocolate. But we're going to have a conversation. And that person who hasn't met before, based on the research you've done, is going to ask all kinds of questions. So what you're trying to do is connect relationship and engage that person. That's the first third. Second third, you're going to say, you know, we have this difference on this DLAM, and you're initially at 10%. Our appraiser said 30 to 35%. We put 30% on the train. How'd you come up with 10%? So you're really going to listen, and you're going to paraphrase, summarize. You're going to ask open-ended questions to understand. You're going to empathize with that person with why they made some of the decisions. They I can see why you do that with what you understand and what you know. Okay, I got it. That's good. I appreciate that's 
that's what you did. And they use the phrase a lot of, tell me more. I just want to understand. Tell me more. And they did that. So now they've been listened to. We've completed the second of the three sessions. Now, the third part is we want to educate judiciously. Now, it turns out, yes, I was a champion of that DLAM job aid. And I looked at it and I said, the original appraiser used nine of the 32 uh, criteria that you might look at in a DLAM. And I said, here are eight more that look like they're applicable. Let's ask some questions. So like one of the questions was, has this entity actually, it was 1120S, has this entity actually made distributions? If so, how much and when? Do they cover taxes? Just some questions like that. So I could come back and say, oh, so they haven't made distributions. So this particular entity, if I was to invest, I can invest in the stock market. I can invest in a private company. 1120 and I get dividends or I can invest in 1120s and I get distributions but if I don't get any distributions I just don't and if I do get a distribution I have to pay tax on it so there were minimal distributions at various times but I have to pay tax on that whether in fact you distribute it or not so there are issues with 1120s so we came up with eight criteria that we said these are actually additional facts that were not in the appraisal the IRS job age says this would tend to increase the DLAM. Would you concur with that? And the person said, yes. Every time you say yes, you produce certain chemicals and hormones in the brain that make you more receptive to the other party. So that happened eight times. Then we moved in. That's, so we've made it through the three sessions, right? Connecting relationships, listening actively, educating judiciously. Now we're going to ask a question. It was very carefully worded. We thought about this. So those two are in the room. And here was the question I said I wanted them to ask. You were originally at 10% with your DLAM, and our appraiser said it was 30 to 35% with the DLAM. And we actually think today, based on those eight things that you've agreed would increase the DLAM, that we think the DLAM really should be 35%. But what do you think? And the IRS person said, could you live with 34%? So what happened is there was a major swing here. It went from owing $12 million with how this had been computed to making a change on audit to reduce the tax by an additional four. So the swing on this was $16 million. Well, that's why this attorney got all excited. He said, come on out, I want you to talk to my firm. You heard my story earlier. And I look at this as that's one story. And I have stories that went for hundreds of thousands of dollars or a few million dollars. And not just with IRS, but in other uh, venues. But I really have to help my, my clients first de-escalate from where they're starting from really listen to them, see if they buy into the process, and then coach them through the process. Again, it's not that hard, but the elements that are in there require some broader thinking and require folks to really want to understand where the other party came from. So whether it's a few few thousand dollars or ten, it's a volunteer thing where I'm volunteering with uh, folks in housing court or conciliation court, or I'm involved with something that's a small business, or I'm involved with Fortune 100 companies and it's a billion dollar issue, the same concepts are involved. So I've learned to ask questions. And when board of directors have brought me in, they've, they've shared with me, Mike, you are not a problem solver. You're a solution provider. And I asked them, what do you mean by that? When we brought you in, we brought you in for a specific problem. But all the questions that you asked, we looked at this much, much broader. We came up with a solution that involved things we hadn't even thought about considering. And it's not because I'm a smart guy. It's because I'm just curious and I'm asking questions and I'm not afraid to ask dumb questions either. So, Well, and I think that that's, 
to me, it's fascinating because it takes a completely different perspective. You know, when we get an IRS audit letter, or if you get something, anything from the IRS, right, you go into automatic defense mechanisms where I'm going to defend what I did. I'm going to argue about my point. I'm going to make them understand when what you're saying is like a completely different shift in mindset in order to get to a resolution as opposed to just fight your position. So I think that that is fascinating. Um, another thing that you have done is you've actually worked with estates of up to a billion dollars mm -hmm. with hundreds of appraisals. What advice do you have for business owners regarding how to avoid an audit by the IRS? Okay, I'm going to, in all uh, fairness, I've only had one billion dollar client. Okay. I've only had one $500 million client. But in both cases, we approach this the same way. And on a billion dollar client, I said, who's doing your appraisals? And they hired eight firms to do these 100 appraisals. And I said, I'd like to ask you to ask your appraiser to provide you with the preliminary appraisal. So not a draft, their preliminary appraisal. And then they don't even know I exist, but I will review through that appraisal, not as a reviewer. There's a, there are techniques that you have to be a qualified reviewer of an appraisal. And that's not what I did. I reviewed it from the perspective of how will the IRS look at this and what can you do to minimize the probability of an audit. So I went through the appraisal and I looked at the various elements associated with it and I made recommendations of how they could shore this up. And many appraisers are technically really good, but maybe they don't necessarily tell the story well. Maybe they don't necessarily reconcile things well. And I'll just take one example on one element. We talked about DLAM. I'll talk about the DLAM. So for example, on a closely held firm, they're looking at a minority interest and there's a discount for lack of marketability. And they may have said, we looked at something relative to these four methods. And in that job aid, it says there are certain ones the IRS has concerns with. So we don't wanna use this particular one because the IRS has concerns with it. Well, they have concerns because the IRS has gone to court six times and won six times relative to that method. So you can use it and it may be okay. You're gonna need to educate them why it's applicable this time given what the court has said about that method other times. But let's just say there are four methods and the four methods were fine. I looked through those and I said, in the IRS job aid, it talks about the strengths and weaknesses of each of those methods. So now that you've come up with those four, many folks then say, so I chose this deal. It's like, well, how did you get there? And I'll push back and say, how about one paragraph on each of those deal methods? And you say, with this one, Here's the strengths, here are the weaknesses. I decided to give this one more weight. And with that one, here are the strengths and weaknesses. I decided to give it less weight. And some people are more analytical and they want to put the percentages on them. That's fine. You don't have to do that. But when you're done, they took the four methods or three methods, whatever there are, and they put a paragraph on for each one. And then after they did that, they wrote a reconciling paragraph and said, with those with that analysis that's up there, we decided to give more weight to number one, less weight to number two, and less weight to number three. And this is what, you don't have to say what the percentages are, but having done that, this is what we chose for our DLOM. Now that little analysis, having just taken the time to do that one item as an example, with other elements in the report relative to the income method, the market approach, the cost approach, and then the various discounts that might've been applicable, that created a much better report because your reader is not necessarily going to be another business value. 
your reader is likely to be an IRS agent that's not a valuer and knows nothing about valuation. And they're trying to figure out whether they even need to bring on board a valuer to assist with the case. So I'm out to, from the very beginning, realize that with the auditor. And from the very beginning, realize when it gets submitted to the IRS, you should always attach it to the return. They're still being accepted in paper. You want to have a qualified appraisal by a qualified appraiser, just like Melissa. So there, you, there's such a thing as three strikes and you're out. Well, there's not three pluses in your safe, but rather you got two out of the three because you got a qualified appraisal by a qualified appraiser. Now, when the appraisal was done, go back to the appraiser and say, give me a one page summary of the key points of this appraisal. So you start off on the top by saying, there's no tax impact on this appraisal. Well, that helps. I don't need to look at this one. Next one says, there is a tax impact on this appraisal at this time. Okay, they're going to want to look at that in classification. With that one, we came through and said, we use these three approaches, income, market, and cost. And on the income approach, these are adjustments to cash flows. And this is our discount rate and how we got there. This is what we assume for a growth rate. You're telling them the, the big points of what you have in your analysis. With the market approach, if it was big enough, you had a guideline company, a guideline public company. If you don't, you might use a transactional database. So what transactional databases did you use or blah, blah, blah. And then there may or may not be a cost approach. Maybe you didn't. Maybe it has a lot of real estate or it's oil and gas or mines. In that case, there's an attached appraisal for the real estate or for the oil and gas or mines or whatever it might be. And you accepted that as a business valuer. And then you adjusted, or then you came up with a value, how you got there. And then you said, these are the discounts. Here's a discount for lack of control. This is my, my number. And I use closed end funds. I'll just make that up. And then for the discount for lack of marketability, I use these three approaches and I reconcile them. And this is what I came up with. So in the end, here's what a value of share of stock is. And here's what the value is of that gift or of the estate for whatever the percentage of shares are. Having said that, that one page goes inside the front cover of that appraisal. So if you're an IRS classifier, what happens when the return is filed with the IRS? Well, they were all filed in Cincinnati, and the IRS has shut down the Cincinnati Service Center, but about one-third of the employees are still in Cincinnati. The new classification location is Kansas City, Missouri. And about once every two weeks to once every uh, two months, two valuers show up. Let's say they showed up from St. Louis. And then two attorneys show up. Say they showed up from Chicago. And those four are going to look at what's come in the last two weeks to two months. And they have some criteria they're going to look at to say, what do we think is an indication of potential adjustment that we need to work on this case or not? And they're going to give various points to different things. And these change. It's a, it's a continually floating system because the number of returns that come in fluctuate. And it's not a supply push. It's a demand pull system. I'll get to that in a moment. But these folks go through this and they say, based on what we see here, higher probability. And based on what we see here, lower probability, I'll just say. And that goes into this national classification process. Now there's an estate and gift tax manager. Oh, by the way, when they did that, they couldn't classify any returns from Missouri or Illinois because they were from Missouri and Illinois. Hmm. So when some other folks show up from wherever, they'll be looking at Missouri and Illinois next time. Now in that national classification process, that put cases in from most probable to audit to least probable to audit. And they developed some threshold that if it's below some threshold, we're not going to audit those. Now, having said that, 
we now have a local manager. Say it's an estate and gift tax manager in Omaha, Nebraska. That estate and gift tax manager says, I need 400 returns for my group. So they asked for 400 returns. And maybe based on the national classification, there were 500 of them. So they got the best 400 out of 500 for their area. Maybe there were only 300 of them. They needed 400. So the next 100 could be from anywhere USA that meet the national classification criteria, the highest ones in that group. When they come into the local area, there's another classification. So the estate and gift tax manager in Omaha contacts the IRS engineering manager for that area and says, can you come down here and work with my employee? And we're going to go through these again. Now they're considering who was the CPA, who was the CPA firm, who was the tax firm that did this work. Uh, who was the valuer that did this work with what firm? And they know some things typically about those and other things. And who the, if it's an estate, for example, or it's a significant gift, who these parties are in their community. They have some idea who they are. And then they come through and they say, based on that, we're going to take those 400 returns and put them in three piles. And one pile says, yes, these are the ones we're going to audit. One pile says, we'll audit these if we have time. And one pile says, no, they're good. We don't need to look at those. That's the national and local classification process on those estate and gift tax returns. And then within the group, the estate and gift tax manager is charged with assigning those cases and will likely say to one of the folks in the group, you who classified them, you tell me which ones you think we should work. I might look at those. I might trust that person just to go with what they've said. And now I'm going to sign these out to members in our group as they need additional inventory. That is fascinating. That is so helpful. So <clears throat> one of the things that I think would be interesting to know from a perspective, because a lot of times going through valuation training, mm -hmm. we have been told to kind of keep your discount for lack of marketability and discount for lack of control in total under 50%. So are there certain thresholds? Are they just looking for really aggressive valuations that maybe take a little too aggressive positions? Um, or is it really the highest dollar amount? Are those looked at more? There are a number of criteria that are going to raise the probability of an audit. Okay. It's important that there isn't this criteria means you'll be audited. Rather, certain elements will increase the probability. Okay. There are folks who work for the IRS who have told my clients things like this. We don't accept any DLOMs over 20%. And that's not true. And they'll say that's an IRS, uh, it's an IRS policy. And okay. that's not true. But they've said that to my client. Or they've said total, DLOM, total um, discounts cannot exceed 35%. That's actually happened to my clients. And when that happens, I push back and I say, well, let's look at the IRS job aid. What does it say? And it says you need to determine what the appropriate discount is based on the facts. So you need to go back in and say, what are the facts and what do they lead to? The IRS has disallowed a, a discount for lack of marketability of 10% for being too aggressive. The IRS has disallowed or has allowed a discount for lack of marketability for 90%. Mm -hmm. That's not normal, but right. it ha happened under my watch. But the facts were put together to say, look what's going on. You're dealing with a hypothetical buyer in a hypothetical seller. But if, for example, if you've got a firm where there are three principals in the firm and the three of them are filing suit against each other because they hate each other and the, the, the uh, projection in the marketplace is this place is, might even go out of business because these folks can't get along. Do you want to invest in that company? 
yeah. <laughs> and I'm going back. No, I think I think I'll go somewhere else. You still have a hypothetical buyer and hypothetical seller, but the hypothetical seller out here happens to have legal constraints of internal suits between shareholders. So that's going to tend to increase that discount for lack of marketability because I don't want to be involved with some firm where they actually are suing each other. I'm just, I'm bringing up, I'm making up facts. Sure. But where I'm coming from is what do the facts dictate and why? So the higher your deal on in this example, say you said, well, they accept total discounts of 50%. In general, that's going to get a good hard look. I'll just say that. But you have to have the rationale as to why. So that's what I'm going to have to spend more time on to educate the IRS because their initial inclination is no. So where I came from on this billion dollar estate with a hundred appraisals, okay? And I said how they were put together and they went on in. About three years later, I get a call from the attorney and the attorney happened on the million dollar estate and the $500 estate. By the way, Mike, the statute has now expired and the IRS never brought us up on audit. Well, I can tell you the national classification on a 500 million or a million or billion dollar estate, they made it to the local level. I know that. Hmm. And I can tell you at the local level, they looked at that and said, oh, wow, this is a good one to work. We're going to get some adjustments in here. But in both of those instances, the IRS, I'm sure, went through that and they were looking for how can we attack this? What are things they did wrong? Let me let me see that they were aggressive. But because the appraisals had excellent documentation and explained things. And because it was summarized in that one sheet, and after you've done a few of them, you say, I can trust these sheets. Mm -hmm. Because I looked at uh, three of them or a half dozen of them, and what they say is on the sheet is what's inside here. So that's helpful. So let's go through these again and let's look at maybe the more significant ones. Maybe we'll stat sample a few of the smaller ones. So let's look at maybe a dozen of these. I'm just making this up. I don't know this. Right. But if they looked at these dozen, they may have come back and said, you know, really, there's nothing here because this firm really clearly spelled it out. So to avoid an audit, in my mind, is it needs to be reviewed again with the perspective of who's going to look at that return and how might they look at it and how do you need to explain it? Well, that is actually really good advice because I think a lot of us put like an initial cover and not a cover page, but like an initial letter that summarizes our value, but not necessarily the assumptions. And then maybe have like an executive summary that also summarizes some of the assumptions. But a lot of times these um, valuations for estate and gift are 50, 100 plus pages. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to, I mean, you know, to give a cheat sheet, basically, I think is a brilliant idea because nobody wants to go through the hundred pages and search out that piece that is applicable. So that's, that is good information. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I think maybe this leads into, because you've already talked about, you know, how, how does classification work at the IRS? And I think you've given kind of an example of an estate or gift tax return. Are there other returns that, you know, you could give an example for how this works? Well, right now I'm focusing on this conversation with estate and gift. Yes. But let's just say, say you were in the category of an 1120 and there are 14, there are 14 different categories within 1120s. And each of those starts with no assets and it tops out at firms that have over $20 billion in assets. 
and just picture a whole bunch in between. And we were involved with putting together the filters on those kind of things based on historical evidence of what the IRS has found, based on changes in tax law today, and based on what the IRS might be auditing two years out. We would put together various filters and the IRS has a, a, a data set, uh, uh, I can't the right term, I'm saying work file, it's not the right term, but they have a data set that's much bigger than tax returns. They have a couple of dozen other data sets with that. And with those other, that's national and they get information from the states. So you're there in Missouri, uh, so with this corporation, they might say, well, who are the directors or shareholders, major shareholders in that corporation? That's part of an audit of a corporation. And they may say, we've got information from the state that, yes, they own this house and the house is valued at that from assessor information. And they have a lake cabin or lake place. And they're driving cars that cost $100,000 and $90,000 or whatever. They may have some toys with some big boats, $200,000 boat, some other things. And they pull that information together on this director. And then they say, interesting, this guy's made less than $10,000 a year in each of the last three years. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So I'm giving you examples of, they'll look at other things and bring those in. And bringing those things in on this 1120 on the directors, they can say, maybe we ought to, we're definitely going to pull the returns on all the directors. They do that with corporations automatically. But we're going to look into that particular director because this just doesn't look right or whatever. And similarly, with the corporation, they come back in and they have the ability to go in and say, well, look at all the 1099s. We'll look at all the K-1s. We're going to look at all the money that came in and out of the corporation. And we're going to look and see what happened during this audit period with the overall number. And they can click on a smart screen and they can go ahead and say, and that one number, which was, it ended up being $1 went from this entity to the other entity. But when you look on it, 100 million went there and 999,999 dollars uh, came back. So there was a $1 item, but we also have the two elements that went back and forth here. I'm just, and I'm making this up, but there are things like this that the IRS can bring into the classification process. So as they look at smaller entities, uh, I refer to this as if you had a 1040, uh, your 1040 today, you may have had an accountant do it. You may have said, you know, I'm going to use my own. I'm going to use that software. I'm going to use Tax Cut. I'm going to use uh, uh, Tax TurboTax. Yeah. yeah, use TurboTax, whatever. And when you're done, what does that? What do they tell you at the end of that? They come through and say, what are your probability of an audit? Mm -hmm. How do they get those? Well, they actually look at what do what does the IRS audit? They're looking at it on the other end because the IRS publishes in their um, IRS data book each year what they did the previous year. Okay, and you can look at that for different returns and things, and they'll say. You know, you have some outliers here. You have a big chunk of charitable contributions, as an example, on the 1040 or whatever, whatever those items are. And so they're saying your probability of an audit is high or a medium or a low. The same thing is happening in that corporate return. And so the IRS is looking at for an 1120 of a particular size. And then they're going to also look at the, uh, the taxpayer identification code. So what industry are you in? Now, working in research, we learned that about 30% of those codes are wrong. About 70% are right. Oftentimes, and I don't mean that they deliberately were, sometimes they could be deliberate, but also it could be the firm started off with a given taxpayer identification code, and it grew and it's doing something completely different than it started off with in 1920, for example. And nobody right. bothered to change that thing. So the IRS looks at that and says, yeah, the, the taxpayer identification code is helpful, and that helps us. And you may be a bigger outlier because you have got the wrong code in there, for example. 
And that may actually point the IRS to look at it because that wasn't right. But they're also, again, looking for what are the outliers? And there may be legitimate reasons for outliers, but that's helped the IRS say that's more likely there can be a problem there. And then there is a group of returns that are just pulled randomly, have nothing to do with any filters or size of entity or type of entity or anything. It's just they randomly pull a certain percentage, and that varies over time. And then there are returns that are pulled for research. So when I was in research, we did things like we're going to send out three letters to 10,000 taxpayers. That's 30,000 letters in a given area. So an example would have been uh, oil and gas distribution. And one group was pipelines and one group was everybody but pipelines. So think of barges and trucks and everything else. And we sent out three letters and we followed those returns for three years. It turned out a patriotic letter. It's good you're paying your taxes. Thank you very much. We're going to be auditing more taxpayers in this particular uh, taxpayer identification code next year and the year following. But we're letting you know that now so that you can take appropriate adjustments so that the probability of your audit will be less. Okay, and then we followed those kind of, that's, and then there was a control group. And we said, let's see what happens with those returns over a three-year period. So we could do that and say, what kind of letters from the IRS affect which kind of taxpayers which way? But that's an example of a non-audit approach. But we were involved with collection, exam, uh, taxpayer service, criminal investigation division, all the different divisions of the IRS. And the bottom line is the IRS is continually trying to improve voluntary compliance. Yeah, and and I think that that probably if you did get a letter such as that, you would uh, start to clean up your books a little bit more um, in the following years, which would also maybe trigger a look. But <laughs> um, so uh, another question that we have is, what is the role of the IRS agent or a specialist on one of these audits? Well, you you need to focus on who is the decision maker and the ultimate decision maker. Okay. So on an estate and gift tax case, the IRS estate and gift tax examiner is your key person. They control the case. They will make a decision on that case. The business valuer is a consultant. Keep that in mind. They don't have ultimate decision making. They're impacting the audit. They're sharing information. But many times, like if you were a business valuer, you look at it as I'm defending my report against that valuer from the IRS. And I'm going to say why I'm right and why they're wrong. And I'm in here with, actually, let's de-escalate this. Let's figure out what they did, why they've come up with what they've come up with. Let's listen to them like they've never been listened to before. Let's paraphrase, summarize, ask a lot of questions, empathize with why they've done with it. Yeah, now you don't have, you don't have, do you have access to BizConf? You have access to, you know, different sources, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to come back with that. Yeah, actually, no, I don't, with whatever things. Oh, you know what? Maybe I should show you what we had. And what we started with and decisions we made to par it down, I'm just, just giving an example, but work your way through that. That may help. And you're also educating who? The agent. Usually think you're trying to educate the business valuer. That's not the decision maker. You want to make sure the agent, the estate and gift tax attorney understands. And then I refer to the case. It has three steps to it. Maybe you got it agreed with that estate and gift tax attorney and with that valuer there. And if you did, Good for you and great, and it's gone. Maybe it's not looking like it's going to be agreed, and the agent's saying, I think I'm going to write this up, and uh, I think we're going to have to go uh, potentially to appeals. 
you go to the second step. The second step was, let's talk with your manager. That's the ultimate decision maker is the estate and gift tax manager. Okay. So the business values are now gone and the representative of the taxpayer is there. They need to be very well briefed. They have to keep it at a high level. They're working with someone who's probably there to defend their employee, but they also are open to, they prefer a closed case. Closed case takes less time. They're trying to close cases. They have a different perspective than the frontline agent does. They know that they're trying to close so many cases in a given year in a given uh, category, state or gift, and the subcategory within that. And they may even get a notice in June to say, hey, we're behind in this particular category. We need more closed cases. And they might be oriented we can get this case closed right now in July, get it closed in by August so that our stats for the end of year, which is September 30th, are going to show that case was closed. And they may have an emphasis, that, let's work this out. So that's with trying to work with the agent and the agent's manager with the taxpayer's representative, which if you're a business valuer, you're not there. If you're the CPA or the estate tax attorney, that's you. And let's say that doesn't work. So we're still looking unagreed. You can always come back to the IRS with another proposal. So I'm, I'm commenting to my clients, when you work with the IRS, the IRS was at 100 and you are at zero. So we start off on opposite ends here. You should determine before you ever talk to the IRS what your best alternative to a negotiated agreement is. It's called BATNA. Mm -hmm. And then your BATNA is 40%, okay? Between zero and 40%, I'm gonna ask the business valuer to help me develop some numbers based on assumptions in the appraisal and on the discounts, et cetera, that are three different numbers between zero and 40%. We now have five computations, right? We have our initial position, we have BATNA, and we have three in between. When you're working with that examiner, on exam, you reach an agreement factually. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're not addressing what happens at appeals with hazards of litigation. We are resolving, the key word is we're resolving the issue based on facts. So you need to have computations. So I'm oftentimes working with my client and saying, let's develop some computations and to keep the business valuer independent, just ask them to do this with that. So with this DLM and that discount rate and these adjustments to cash flow. So you're just doing computations. On the other hand, sometimes you're actively involved with your client and you're happy to do this because you see what's taking place. Some say, I did my valuation, that's it. If you want to hire me to do these computations, I do that independently, it has nothing to do with my valuation. And I respect that. But we have those. So you've done the first go around with the agent and it didn't work with the valuer. Now you're with the the agent and the agent's manager, but before the case closes up, one last call to the agent's manager and say, hey, look, before this goes forward, this is a final offer. I know we only got to the second of, you know, you only got to the second of your three and then the BATNA, and maybe now you're gonna offer them the third one, or you're gonna offer them the BATNA, because you don't wanna have to take uh, another six months, nine months, possibly two years at appeals and all the expenses with that. So you're willing to do something now and now the manager listens to that and says, okay, we can do that. And he's going to tell his agent, we're going to get something from them of how they got that number. We're going to put that into a report. We're going to close it out agreed. You won't need to spend 20 hours closing out the case. It usually takes about 30 days and some time to do it. Instead, it's an agreed case. We can close it out in an hour. You don't have to write an unagreed report and it's gone. And besides, it's another closure. So understanding the interests of the parties involved, which they won't share all that with you that I've just shared with you. But understanding the, and I, I come back 
and I explore those interests. I ask my clients to ask certain questions. And when they ask these questions, the IRS person goes like, wow, this is a much smarter practitioner than normal. And they don't normally ask these questions. And since they're asking me these questions, yeah, maybe this is one I should work towards closure on because this is a little more uh, intelligent or up-to-date practitioner than some of the other folks I work with. Well, and so this is a this is an interesting, there is so much that you just told us in this last piece. So let's just unpack it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You Do you typically see the value? So a person does a valuation for an estate or a business and they're gifting it. Let's just say for that example, mm-hmm. do you see the person who did the original valuation coming in to defend it with the IRS, because I'm not hearing that. I'm hearing more that you're saying, you know, there's a lot of players, um, but that original valuation person may not be it. Somebody like you might come in and have to kind of go through this process. Does that make sense? Well, let me, I'm going to take your question. I'm going to answer a little bit differently. Okay. If the there's a taxpayer. A taxpayer yeah. has uh, an attorney, and the attorney is helping file the return associated with this gift. Yes. And the valuer did an appraisal. About nine times out of ten, the valuer never knows that this is under audit. Mm-hmm. So I've written an article in the Valuation Examiner that's coming out um, uh, here in the, the next issue of the Valuation Examiner, and I talk about what to do in an economic downturn based on 2008, 2009. And I had a business valuation at that time. And I talk about what's recently happened in SBSE, small business self-employed, relative mm-hmm. penalties on appraisers with code section 6695A. And for appraisers, I've run through what the IRS isn't doing. I can go into this whole another tangent on that. But appraisers have greater risk today than they did prior to January 22nd. When the IRS said, from now on for SBSE, where you're going to want to put a penalty on an appraiser, no valuers have to look at. In an LBNI, Large Business and International, assets over 10 million, two IRS valuers and a valuation manager have to all concur that they think, yes, we should open an investigation for a penalty. In SBSE, the agent and the agent's manager can simply say, we think we should apply a penalty on this appraiser based on the differences in dollar amounts. And that's really significant for appraisers. So I worked with American Society of Appraisers, John Russell. He, he's an attorney with them. We drafted, he drafted a letter. Uh, I edited it minorly. I added a paragraph to it. It went out to all the major appraisal organizations in the AICPA. Uh, Twelve appraisal organizations wrote back to the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Tax Policy and wrote to uh, uh, the Commissioner of the IRS. Since then, the AICPA with 400,000 members, they wrote their own letter to these folks and they stated, we think you overlooked asking for public comment before you did this IRS. They were very polite, but the IRS just did that. So I'm back in here now with, I would say to folks, and I put this out on a newsletter, I put out a special newsletter, I have two newsletters um, that go out one every other month. One is for folks working with the IRS and business valuers and those folks. One is related to conflict resolution negotiation and neuroscience. But I put out a special addition to the folks that are in my data set as uh, CPAs, tax attorneys, and valuers. And I said, 
I'm making a number of specific recommendations. One is in my engagement letter, I'm going to say, if this return would happen to be audited, you need to notify me within 10 days. If this return is audited by the IRS and there are any questions on this appraisal, you'll notify me of that within 10 days. Because they're in there, they are in there, your taxpayer's attorney is in there negotiating your valuation with the IRS, which could result in a penalty on you. And you don't even know what's going on until it's, they've agreed to something. And then somebody's going to come in and say, well, that's the proper value. There's a potential penalty on you. So I put in a number of criteria in that. Those are two points, but there's a number of criteria I put in there, basically saying, you want to know what's going on. So back to your question. Generally, the valuer doesn't even know the return is under audit. But I'll oftentimes say to my client, you want to ask these questions of the valuer. So those that, that BATNA and the three in between, we ask questions to develop each of those mathematically. And then the attorney for the taxpayer is negotiating with the IRS attorney, that's the estate and gift tax attorney, on the estate or gift valuation given these new assumptions. But we listen to the IRS and ask them what their biggest concerns were. And having listened to the concerns, sometimes the concern, like an example in the 1120S is uh, out, out of the southeast part of the country, ran into an agent that said, I just don't tax effect. So if you're going to tax effect, it's unagreed. Okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. Went back to the valuer and I asked two questions. I, actually, my client asked. The valuer never knew I was here. But I said, are there any reasons why there might be a higher discount rate? And what might those be? And the valuer came with four reasons. And then we came back with, what would the discount rate have to be if we didn't tax effect the 1120S? And they came up with 11, per, 11%, 11 points higher. So then I said, do a computation with 11 points higher and give that back to the client. So the client asked for that. Then I said to the client, go to the IRS estate and gift tax attorney and say, we're not going to tax effect, but here are four reasons why the discount rate could be higher. We didn't say it was, we just said it could be. And here's a computation without tax effecting with this discount rate we raised by 11 points. And would you accept that? To which the IRS examiner, the agent said, I can live with that, but I didn't want a tax effect. Now, as a valuer, that hurts your head. But as an agreement with the taxpayer, that worked to resolve the case. So that was actively listening. We said connecting relationships, listening actively. We're not going to attack that agent. We're asking the agent where they're coming from and why. And I just, I worked with my client to find a way to try and resolve the case factually on audit to address the concerns of that estate and gift tax attorney. That is very helpful. Um, one additional question that we had to do that I think we've already sort of dealt with, but I want to just clarify because it is a lot of information in an IRS audit. You've already said who the ultimate decision maker is on the case, which I thought was really fascinating in that it is not the other valuation person. Mm -hmm. It is actually the the you tell me it's the two other people so it's well, the agent the agent can make the decision on this agreed case okay but oftentimes if it's not agreed with the agents the agent is a decision maker right but if the agent doesn't agree then i said that's just step one step two is contact the agent and want to have a meeting with the agent and the agent's manager because the right. agent manager is the ultimate decision maker and is looking at this from a broader perspective and yeah. then the third step would be just to contact that agent manager. If we still don't have an agreement with, this is my final offer. 
And that oftentimes will result in an agreed case, but the agent's manager is ultimate, but hopefully you don't have to get there and you can reach an agreement with the agent. But the valuer is strictly a consultant on the case. And that, and I think that that goes against some of our natural thought process is that I'm the valuator or, you know, the attorney coming in and we're going to fight these valuation issues with the two valuators. And so I think that's a very important distinction is to understand who is actually making the decisions in this process. Um, another thing that we've talked about and we, and this is probably to get us to a couple summary questions, basically, because we've talked about a lot of interesting topics. But do you have an example um, of a, a tax audit that you want to share? And it kind of offers some additional suggestions on how to work with the IRS. Okay, this is this is uh, not an estate and gift tax case. This is okay. a construction company. It's worth about fifty million dollars or it has revenues, about $50 million, has about 250 employees. And again, I'm gonna give it to you in a nutshell, but I knew an attorney who knew an attorney and that second attorney called me up and said, I'm the legal counsel with this firm. We do have a controller. We have an outside auditor, I've never been audited before and we're looking for some advice. And I said, well, uh, where are you at at this point? Well, we've just been, we've got the uh, initial, it's called package audit, initial opening letter. Uh, 14 things are being requested. It's a package for this uh, 1120S. And this, I said, yes, I can help you. The first thing we're going to do, first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at those 14 points and see, do we have anything in there which maybe is not on point or needs to be changed or any errors? There are errors on two of the 14 items. This is a L, this is an LBNI, large business and international case. That means more than 10 million. But this is a small case in LBNI. Remember, the last category was over $20 billion. That's the biggest category. So we have an agent that's probably not that experienced. And it wasn't. This person came from SBSE, Small Business Self-Employed, and is now working a case. He's only been in this division for about six months and has never worked a case this big before. So we pushed back on two of the items and said, uh, we just want to ask you some questions about that. And then we also pushed back and said, hey, we found this directive. This directive is dated February of 2014. And I'm gonna share this now for, for SBSE audits too. That directive has a 12 point process on how we handle information document requests and proposed adjustments and how we discuss them first. We get a preliminary information document request. We discuss that, it's finalized. Once it's finalized, we agree on a date to respond. You then get the IDR, you work it, you respond. You're always timely, always under promise and over deliver leave yourself float, you get it back to the IRS. Then you say, we got that back to you in two weeks, you ask, or, or 30 days or whatever it is. And then whatever it took you, you ask for the same back from the IRS. Can you get back to me in two weeks or 30 days with either you've closed out the issue, you have additional information you wanna request, or you have a preliminary proposed adjustment. And if you do, we're asking that you attach that to an information document request. Because if you get a proposed adjustment, that starts clock ticking on the whole audit and when it's got to close and time to respond. But if it's a preliminary proposed adjustment attached to an IDR, it hasn't hit the system of being a proposed adjustment. Gotcha. Well, with that, with that scenario, in an LBNI, I'm sorry, now an SBSE, I said, you can get that document. If you contact me, I'll send it to you, but you can get it on Google. Information document request, large business international division, February 2014. 
the folks in SBSE don't even know that exists. And their typical process is, I've looked at something, I ask a request, I get it back, I don't ask for a follow-up request, I make up a proposed adjustment, I give it back to the taxpayer, take it or leave it, you can go to appeals. Wow, that's typical SBSE. When you show that to an SBSE agent, like an estate and gift tax attorney, I've not had a single client come back to me and say, the SBSE agent said, no, I'm not going to do that. They've all said, oh, I didn't know this existed. Yeah, we can do that. Because you've asked me to do it. Yeah, we can do that. They've never said no. But now back on this case, the agent, I'll make up her name, I'll call her Jessica Smith. She came out on site and she said, I'd like you to call me agent Jessica Smith. I said, call me Dr. Michael Gregory or Mr. Michael Gregory. That's not normal. So this person's wound pretty tight. Okay, maybe a confidence issue here. But we did our research. We found out a number of things about Jessica Smith. She's been in, worked for the IRS for four years. She's been six months in LBNI. She's married. She has one daughter. Her daughter is six months old. She's just coming off of maternity leave. Um, she has a cabin. There's a bunch of other things. Okay. Well, this guy, who's the attorney, he's been with the company for four years as their attorney. He has one child. His child's about nine months old. He has a cabin. Okay. So do they find things they can talk about? Yes. What are they doing? They're connecting relationships. As they go through this, the person is actively listening. We're always asking questions. I'm helping this person to ask questions of the IRS. And the person is becoming far more comfortable. And they're listening to the dialogue back and forth. And as this goes forward, when the agent said there's going to go down some dead end, we're pointing out it's a dead end. But we also pointed out some things that there are some possibilities here. They should look at those. So I'm going to just give you one. Uh, there were a dozen issues. And six of them were developed. Four were associated with the final uh, audit. But here's one. She, this person said, you have 250 employees. I want to get monthly credit cards, receipts, and, in, and the travel vouchers for these 250 people. So think about this. 250 people times 12 months and the volume on that. And we pushed back and said, well, actually, we can do that. But maybe you want to do a stat sample because the voucher had to be submitted. The boss had to approve it. The controller had to approve it. The outside auditors have looked at these. They're clean because the company just has in those things hotel and food. That's it. And it's pretty straightforward. On the other hand, we shared this with her. We said, there are two accounts that the owners use and they put money through those personal account or personal expenses through those two credit cards. And I'll just share with you. One had about a hundred thousand, one had 300,000. That's about 400 grand. We, said, we think you might want to look at those. Okay. And she did. And she didn't make a $400,000 adjustment. She made a $40,000 adjustment. Sure. And she took the lowest of the low-hanging fruit and said, you need to clean that up. And as the audit went on, we caught her doing things right. Well, that, my book here, Business Valuations in the IRS, it's a, thick, a big book. Okay, This book has a chapter on how IRS employees are evaluated. So we said, oh, let's write a memo to her email. She can give to her boss about what a good job she's doing. She took that email catching people doing things right, gave it to her boss. And her boss went, wow, that's really cool. When we got, when we were completing up the, the one-year audit, maybe about $300,000 in adjustments, the response came back and said, you know, boss, this taxpayer has been so good to work with, and they've been so open to us, and they point out things to us. I'm going to recommend we don't open up the second year. I'm going to let you know that's like almost unheard of. Because after the IRS audits one year on a return, they generally always open up a second year, because what you've learned on the first year you can apply to the second year without much work. You know right. what? Okay. She recommended don't even do the second year. And her boss said okay to that. So it was a one-year audit. 
Okay, now the case is all over. And this attorney shares with me afterwards, Mike, you cost us uh, $10,000, $20,000, whatever it was, to help me all the way through this consulting on a per hour basis over this nine month audit. And I wanna share with you, we went to a major firm right below the big four, big national firm, but not one of the big four. And they said, for this one year, you probably are gonna owe about 4 million in tax. And for this one year, they're probably gonna find about 1.2 million in tax, but we can help you and you're gonna pay us $250,000 for this one year with this audit. So the guy said, wow, Mike, heck of a lot cheaper, really good advice. We worked all the way through this. Now we know what to do for next time. And that was extremely helpful. So I didn't know that until this was over for that case, but that's the case where I'm coming back in with, what did we do? Connecting relationships, listening actively, educating judiciously. And we didn't try to hide anything. We weren't doing anything below uh, illegal, wrong, unethical. We were strictly above board. And that's how it worked out because most taxpayers don't think about trying to work with the IRS with that kind of integrity. And by having that attitude and understanding and listening and addressing the interests of the parties, it was very successful. So that client came out of there with, wow, that was very helpful. The, the, the evaluation I got back was extremely good from the client because the client felt they now know what to do going forward too. But that's a long story, but. No, I think it's a great story because I think that that, that is some of, you know, in talking about the collaborative effect and talking about mediation techniques, you know, even your, your best option, you know, all of these things I think are what people need to start to get to. It's not sometimes the um, apparent issue, right? There's a tax issue. You owe this. We think you owe that. It's not just about that. It's really about digging deeper. And I think you've enunciated it beautifully in how to do this. Um, and, and realistically, I think if somebody did have an issue with the IRS, you should talk to somebody like you that understands it from a psychological standpoint, a negotiating standpoint, and the money standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, I mean, it's an old adage that you get way more done when you can be peaceful and have conversations as opposed to fighting it. And like, you're going to be wrong, I'm going to be right. And let's get there because nobody ever wants to be the wrong person. You know, everybody wants to be right. And how do you get to there? Um, a, one final question that we have is if you have any summary comments additional things you'd like to talk about regarding this presentation, your pocket guide or how people can reach out because you do a lot of speaking engagements and you talk about these issues to a lot of different folks. So if you can tell us more about those types of things that you can offer or any additional comments about how to deal with people um, in the IRS. Okay, thank you. Yes, I've in the past uh, eight years, I've given over 450 presentations in the US and Canada. And those presentations have been with various societies, associations, with companies, with appraisal organizations. And I've taken this element called the collaboration effect, and I've put together this little pocket guide. This is the pocket guide, the collaboration effect. Gotcha. If somebody sends me an email, I'll send that to an electronic form. This is a summary of the major points. And it starts off with what you've already heard about connecting relationships, listening actively, and educating judiciously. And as you open it up, the next page has, with connecting relationships, here are six things to think about. With listening actively, here are 
seven things that you might want to think about as a question. And my favorite question that I like to ask is, what would you like to have happen? I might say it different ways, but what would you like to have happen? And then I follow up with, again, the tell me more is extremely important. So as you're listening to folks and understanding where they're coming from and they develop trust with you, you really can work with them. And then inside here, I also have 10 steps to interspace uh, solutions. That's tied into two of my different books. I have key terms inside here. I also have understand positions versus interests and people versus problems. And the summary of this is be tough on the problem and be gentle on the people. Mm. Acknowledge your own emotions and theirs and without blame. That's really important. Never blame. If someone's blaming, if they're blaming you, stay above the line. If you're ready to blame someone else on something, realize I got to catch myself. We don't want to blame ourselves for what I could have or would have or should have done. I call that BS. No BS, no be all. Mm-hmm. No blaming self and no blaming others. Avoid the two stinky twins. Right. BS and BO. And the last one is you've heard the golden rule. You may even heard the platinum rule. The, the platinum rule is on here with treat others as they would like to be treated. But to do that, you need to know about more about them and what's important to them and why that's important to them. So it takes a little bit better, a little bit better digging. If you're just going to do the golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. You may not understand cultural differences. And I commented the IRS, geographic differences, differences within um, industries, differences within the stovepipes, the different divisions. So keep an open mind, work with the IRS, with connecting relationships, listening actively, educating judiciously to build bridges to negotiate closure. In the end, isn't that what you want? You want to have closure. Get this behind you so you can go on to other things. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of one of the overall things that I think is really important in what you're saying and having gone through, because I've been trained as a mediator as well, a lot of these techniques and a lot of just a thoughtful process and, and realistically, it's just treating it different. You know, IRS agents are probably very used to people coming for them and people being angry and, and irate and, you know, you're, you're making me do things that I don't necessarily want to do and all of these types of things. I think that, you know, you can get a lot more done with some of the ways that you have talked about. And it is neuroscience. It is um, psychological negotiation, but it's also getting to a point that is beneficial for both parties. It's really not trying to trick somebody to get what you want. It's trying to get both parties to a place where we can both say, okay, this is, this, this allows us to close this case. And I think we're all okay with it, you know, and sometimes it, maybe it's just supporting your position, supporting how you got there. Um, Maybe putting more stuff in your report that is helpful. But I think that that one page at the beginning for the valuation report really could um, stop a lot of this confrontation. Um, So I think that's going to be really helpful. But thank you so much. Mike, um, we're going to include all of the information of how to contact you. I have been urging everybody during this time frame to reach out to experts such as yourself and ask questions. You know, if this is something that um, attorneys are dealing with right now, 
that they should reach out to you because just in the case that you talked about, you know, maybe your fees are under 50,000, but they're not 250,000, you know, and that's a significant difference. And it seems like you are way more effective in this process. Um, so I really appreciate all of your insight today. I'm sure we're going to convince you to come back for um, maybe another topic talking about individuals going through the, an IRS audit, but this was very helpful for valuation. I appreciate it. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate being on your program. It's absolutely been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.